Hello and welcome to Catholic View on this Thursday evening. I'm Sheila Birch. Thank you so much for joining me. Coming up in today's broadcast, being a Thursday, of course, we bring you our woman feature. But first, as usual, we begin with some of the stories that made headlines in Africa and in the Catholic Church today. Hi, I'm Archbishop Peter Wells, Apostolic Nuncio. Thank you for listening to Radio Veritas, the good news for a change. And in your headlines this Thursday evening, Pope Francis reflects on death at daily mass. Caritas Uganda is calling for help for South Sudanese refugees. And Togo public workers join strike as protests mount. Good evening once again, I'm Sheila Pirish. In his homily at the Daily Mass at Casa Santa Marta, Pope Francis reflected on three realities. Death is a fact. Death is an inheritance. Death is a memory. Inspired by the reading from the first book of Kings on the death of David, Pope Francis invited everyone to pray and to ask for the grace of a sense of time in order not to be imprisoned by the present moment, closed in on oneself. Death, the Pope said, is a fact that affects everyone. For some it comes later, for some sooner, but it comes. The Pope said we should also consider that death is a legacy, not a material inheritance, but a legacy of memory, an anticipated memory to reflect upon, concluded Pope Francis. The Vatican has announced that the annual Lenten retreat for the Pope and members of the Roman Curia will focus this year on the theme Praise of Thirst. Nosipo Hedebe has more. Themes of meditation during the week-long spiritual exercises include Apprentices of Amazement, The Science of Thirst, The Thirst of Jesus, and Listen to the Thirst of the Peripheries. The retreat will be held from February the 18th to the 23rd and led by Father José de Mendonça, a Portuguese priest, poet, and biblical theologian who was selected by Pope Francis to prepare and deliver meditations during the spiritual exercises. The week of prayer and meditation will take place in Aritzia, a town just 16 miles outside of Rome. The Portuguese Diocese of Funchal has revealed that a priest who fathered a child has resigned from his duties as a pastor but will be able to continue his pastoral ministry. In November last year, Father Giselo Andrade, then pastor of Our Lady of the Hill Church, revealed that he fathered a girl born in August. After investigating the case, the Diocese of Funchal stated that the church is a place of mercy and God forgives everything, but a double life is unacceptable. A diocesan notice released earlier this week stated that the priest will be able to continue the exercise of his pastoral ministry through some activities that were already entrusted to him in the area of of communications and others that eventually may be assigned to him. Two local terrorist organizations in Mali with links to Al-Qaeda have released a video of a reported message from a Colombian nun kidnapped almost a year ago in Mali. In the video, Sister Cecilia Agoti appeals to Pope Francis for his help in securing her release. Nosipo Hadebe has more. 
The video appears to have been made in December and, according to reports, lasts 4 minutes and 44 seconds. The Colombian National Police said earlier this month that they are collaborating with the Vatican Police to obtain the 56-year-old nun's release. A spokesman for the police say the kidnapping was done for ransom. Sister Cecilia has served in Mali for 12 years. The community administers a large health center in the country as well as a home where they care for orphans. The Caritas Uganda Humanitarian Emergency Coordinator Christine Okelo says South Sudanese refugees are continuing to arrive in neighboring Uganda and the situation in Bidi Bidi refugee camp the world's largest is likely to get worse. Calling York Hesmal. Uganda currently hosts 1.3 million refugees and asylum seekers, most of them from South Sudan. The influx is stretching resources which is causing a crisis. The problems faced by refugees in BDBD settlement include inadequate nutrition, sanitation and hygiene facilities. She said Caritas Uganda is providing essential services and has been helped by other Caritas agencies from around the world. In the face of the worsening conditions at the camp Okello has called on the international community to show more compassion and a more comprehensive, timely, bold and innovative response to the crisis. Meanwhile, UN High Commissioner for Refugees Filippo Grandi has praised Uganda for having the most progressive refugees policies in Africa and perhaps throughout the world. Dean Penn reports from UN News. Filippo Grandi was speaking to journalists on Wednesday after touring the Imvepi refugee settlement located in the north. The UN refugee chief is on an official visit to the East African country, which is hosting the largest refugee population on the continent. Around 1.4 million people have found refuge there, the majority of whom have fled conflict in neighboring South Sudan. Mr. Grandi praised Uganda's open border policy, describing it as a model for the rest of the world. He highlighted that refugees there are allowed to work and can access basic services such as health care and education. They often receive parcels of land to grow food, he added. However, the UN refugee chief warned that communities hosting refugees and which also are facing development challenges must also benefit. <laughs> In other African news, healthcare workers, teachers and students have added their voices to anti-government protests in Togo, staging a nationwide strike. Al Jazeera's Miriana Hond reports. It looks more like a street party than a protest, but behind the smiles are serious complaints. Hospitals without water, equipment or staff, teachers on pitiful wages, students burdened with crippling debt, and a president who refuses to give up a position in his family for more than 50 years. We will not give up, we will not stop until he quits power. For five months, protesters have been calling for an end to the political dynasty. Togo was the only country in West Africa that doesn't adhere to presidential term limits. That's kept the Nsingba family in power for half a century. First Nsingba Iyadema for 38 years, and then his son Fo Nsingba, who took over in 2005 when his father died. 
President Ford pledged in late September to hold a constitutional referendum. But the proposal for a two-term presidency is not retroactive. That means Nsingba could stand again, even twice, potentially keeping him in power until 2030. We know that Togolese are determined. They are not with us on the street just to have fun. This movement began because they know they must take a stand here. A coalition of 14 opposition parties has been leading the mass demonstration since August. Security forces violently suppressed some early gatherings. People have been killed and there have been arrests and detentions. If their intention is to intimidate us so we stop telling people what's going on, well, they are wrong. We will not stop. Arresting our members will not give young people jobs or bring democracy and change. That is why we will not stop. Few here have experienced life under anyone other than a Singba or his father. Discontent like this and for so long is unprecedented in Togo. It's put the president under enormous pressure but he's still showing little interest in vacating his seat. And finally, according to the UN-led study published yesterday, cancer is taking a heavy toll on several of the world's major emerging economies. The study finds that the disease caused more than $46 billion in productivity losses in 2012 in Brazil, the Russian Federation, India, China and South Africa all members of BRICS. UN News DN Pen has more. This was the most recent year for which data was available in all these countries, which account for more than 40% of the world's population and a quarter of the global gross domestic product. Around 42% of the world's cancer deaths occur in the BRICS nations, with liver cancer and lung cancer having the greatest impact on total productivity lost. The study was conducted by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, the IARC, together with leading cancer research institutions in the five nations. The IARC is the specialized cancer agency of the World Health Organization. Lead author Dr. Alison Pierce said, studying the economic impact of cancer in fast-developing economies highlights the urgency of tackling preventable cancers in these countries and the high cost of cancer, not only in terms of lives, but also in terms of its impact on the economy. And that was a look at some of the stories that made headlines in the Catholic Church and in Africa today. Thank you once again for being here with me. It's a Thursday evening and that simply means one thing, that up next is our Women Feature. Women on the African continent are generally treated as second-class citizens. They do not enjoy the same positions as men. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too successful, otherwise you will threaten the man. Some men refuse to invest in the education of their daughters because they say they will soon get married. Because I am female, I am expected to aspire to marriage. I am expected to make my life choices, always keeping in mind that marriage is the most important. 
But why do we teach girls to aspire to marriage and we don't teach boys the same? We raise girls to see each other as competitors, not for jobs or for accomplishments, which I think can be a good thing, but for the attention of men. Feminist, a person who believes in the social, political and economic equality of the sexes. Women on the Forefront, a program dedicated to women who are making a difference. Welcome back to our Women's Feature. This evening we focus on Anne Frank's childhood friend, Eva Schloss. A Holocaust survivor and former playmate of one of history's most tragic figures has a message for the world about genocide that we haven't really learned. Miss Eva Schloss was a neighbor of Anne Frank, the young Jewish girl whose famous diary detailed her family's life in hiding during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands during the Second World War. Miss Schloss was just 13 when her own family of four was also forced into hiding in Amsterdam. Miss Schloss was at the UN in Geneva, which is hosting an exhibition about Anne Frank's life in connection with the International Day of Commemoration of the Victims of the Holocaust. Brandon Cowley from UN News spoke to Miss Schloss about Anne Frank and their friendship. Let's listen. We lived both in the Merveda plan, and um, there were small apartments, and of course no gardens. And so after school, all the children always came out to play in the street. So after school, we met little girls, lot of little girls, boys, everything. We played games, marbles, or hopscotch, or um, skipping. I was a new child because I came in February 14. Anne had been there already for years. She was really a Dutch girl. And so when she heard I came from Vienna, she said, oh, you must come up to my father. He will speak German to you, which was very nice because I didn't speak much Dutch. That's how I met the family. But I was through already experience in Vienna and in Belgium. I had uh, already experienced anti-Semitism, so I was not so outgoing. I was quite shy which I wasn't in Vienna originally, but, you know, I didn't feel so easy in a foreign country. And Anne was very sure of herself, oversure, I thought, you know. <laughs> and uh, she always wanted to be the center of attention, and uh, she was a big chatterbox, and at school she was called Mrs. Quack Quack. But nevertheless, you know, I looked up at her, really. I really admired her for her knowledge. We went in both families the same day. We disappeared into hiding. That was in June 1942. And then I never ever saw her again. Before that, when you were still playing together as little girls, were you about 11 or 12, is that right? 11 and 12, yeah. I was just 13 then when we went into hiding, and so was Anne. She was just one month younger than me. I was born in May and she in June. And I believe she flirted with your older brother? Well, she wanted to. <laughs> she was uh, very interested in boys, and my brother was a handsome young man, and he very musical. He played guitar and sang, and so when she heard that an older brother, she wanted to come and visit. But, you know, a little girl the age of his little sister, he wasn't interested. He later, luckily, had once a, li a girlfriend who was more his age. You've just said that when you finally had to leave, you and, and Anne and your families, you never saw her again. What is your last memory of her? Well, I can't really remember, you know. I mean, 
and know that we all kept it secret. We didn't tell that we were going to disappear. So I only knew that uh, sister had heard as well the same call-up notice to be deported, like my brother. By that time, it was really dangerous to go out in the street. So we, I don't think the last week of freedom still, I don't think we saw each other. How much did you know about what was going on at that time? Were you scared? We were all scared. We were scared that especially the, my brother or my father would be arrested because those were the people they went after first. But till my father told us that we were going to hiding and that we were going into two different places because nobody said he can't find a family who would take four people. And I was upset because I wanted to stay with, especially with my brother. We were very close. And so he said to me, if we go to two different places, the chance that two of us will survive is bigger. And that was actually a thing. I was 13 years old that I realized it is a matter of life and death. And that really scared me. Your father was a very wise man. Do you remember, well, his last advice to you on the train when you were going towards Auschwitz? Yeah. Well, you know, he he was very, 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 he was a very good, I mean, we only were two children, but he as a family man, you know, for him the family was the most important thing and that he couldn't look after us anymore was for him really very, very sad. And so he tried to give us advice to always helping each other and especially wash our hands after we've been to the toilet and try to keep clean so that we wouldn't get ill. And, you know, there was no hygiene whatsoever in Auschwitz. So, you know, it was so ridiculous that when I thought back that he said wash hands or, you know, there was just no washing whatsoever. But it was his way of trying to protect you as much as he could. He he didn't know I we had no idea really what was going to happen. Or, of course, we were going to be killed, but then you didn't need to be careful. We didn't know that we were going to Auschwitz in that train. And there were work camps. I mean, many transport went to camps where people were not killed immediately. They were hard working. And then when they were too weak, then very often they were sent to Auschwitz to be killed. But the chance that we were going to a labor camp was there still. But there were camps like Treblinka, where there was no selection. If you were 20 or 30 or a good working or a strong person, the whole transport by the arrival went immediately to be gassed. So we could have been just as well sent there. I believe that the last time you saw your, your father was by chance in Auschwitz-Birkenau. What happened on that occasion? Well, for me, it was in one way a wonderful occasion, but for him, it was, I think it was a death sentence for him because my mother had been selected to be killed. And for three months, I assumed she had been killed. It was in the middle of winter, might have been December, and I was had terrible open toes. I was starving, I was freezing, and I was nearly on the point of giving up. I worked in the Weberei, and uh, they called me out. A couple came and said, you're wanted outside, and I said, oh God, what now? And I go outside, and my father stood there. Very, very thin, but still recognizable. And of course, I fell in his arms. 
And of course, the next question was, where is Muti? And I told him that she had been gassed. And this man crumpled in front of my eyes. And, you know, I think later when he was on the death march, probably, perhaps, Heinz died first. He thought his wife is dead. He didn't think I could have survived. I think he just gave up. You know, very often people ask if you have guilt that you survived. I said, no, definitely not. But this is, I feel guilty that I told him. But of course, I had to, and he wanted to know. And it was for me a comfort that I could share it with him. But I'm sure if he would have known, he would have fought. He would have not given up. He was such a strong man, physically and mentally. For the younger generations, it's unfathomable to think of what you have been through and and so many other people who were in your position. What can we do to keep the memory alive? First of all, we are still around, so perhaps 10 years you might still hear the story from people. So you will hear, you will never be forgotten, but... um, Of course, it's not the same if you hear it from the people who have gone through it. But we have hope as well that the second generation, so they haven't said yet, but a lot of them might take over to tell our story. Why is it so important to tell your story? Well, because we haven't really learned. You know, if no genocides would be around anymore, I think we would be quiet, we would enjoy our life and and um, not keep on, on and on and tell the story. But unfortunately, I think it's perhaps even worse because it is, at the time it was in one country, it was Germany, but now it seems everywhere there is prejudice and discrimination and terrorist attacks. We are living in a very, very, very dangerous world, and as well, which has nothing to do with the Holocaust, but still we are ruining our planet, and we really, really have to put all our brain together and work to stop all this and give our young people a chance, otherwise there won't be any human race left eventually. Why did you decide to share your story? Well, that came by chance through an Anne Frank exhibition which came to London in 1986. And of course, my mother and me were invited. And it was Ken Livingston who was at the time the head of the, well, like a mayor. And um, he was at head table. And um, he said, come and sit with us. And very innocently, I thought, well, all right, I can sit there. But I'd never, ever spoken about anything what had happened. And at the end... He said, and now Eva will want to say something. Well, I didn't want to say anything. I wanted to hide under the table. But I saw all those 200 pairs of eyes looking at me expectingly. And so after thinking a few moments and not really knowing what to say, everything that for 40 years I had suppressed it came out. And it was a great relief. And it was a watershed. And a real, first of all, I realized that people wanted to know that I have a message. And that brings me up to time. This has been your Thursday's edition of Catholic View. Thank you so much for listening. Remember that I'll be back again tomorrow at the same time. Until then, God bless you and ciao, ciao. I'm Sheila Pirsch.